Warning, this episode contains descriptions of gun violence and mentions domestic abuse, child neglect, Asian hate crime, drug use, suicide, and self-harm. Listener discretion is advised. On January 29, 1979, 16-year-old Brenda Spencer opened fire at the Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego. Twelve days away from its 10-year anniversary, 26-year-old Patrick Purdy opened fire at the Cleveland Elementary School seven hours away in Stockton. Despite this near coincidence, the shootings are completely unrelated. The shooters had different motives, upbringings, and outcomes. However, they had both attended the schools they eventually targeted. This is part two of the Cleveland Elementary School shootings. If you haven't listened to part one, don't worry. Order here doesn't matter. In this episode, we examine the Stockton shooting, the impact on the victims, and the psychology of the killer. On January 17, 1989, Patrick Purdy used an AK-47 to take the lives of five Southeast Asian immigrant children. Thirty additional children and one teacher were wounded but survived. Why did this happen? What can we do to prevent tragedies such as these that continue still to this day? Patrick Purdy was born on November 10th. 1964 in Tacoma, Washington. His mother, Kathleen, was absent and suffered from alcoholism. She focused more on work and play than providing her children stability. Patrick took the name of his father, Patrick B. Purdy, who was stationed 10 miles away in Fort Lewis at the time of his birth and infant years. His parents separated after his father threatened his mother with a gun. His father would eventually be discharged from the army for petty crime and psychotic instability. Eventually, a divorce was finalized, and Patrick B. abandoned his family. When Patrick was four, Kathleen married another abusive man. From four to eight years old, Patrick watched helplessly as his mother was beaten right in front of him. When children are between the ages of three to five, they reach critical milestones in their development such as learning how to speak and behave. Interactions with family members and their environment shapes their personality and how they think about the world. During this stage of life, Patrick was suffering from neglect and witnessing his mother's abuse firsthand. The next stage of developmental milestones occurs from six to eight. A child's physical, social, and mental skills evolve quickly at this stage. Most critically, This is when children develop their confidence, understand their place in the world, and visualize their future. Statistics show that when a child suffers abuse and neglect, their odds of arrest as a juvenile is increased by 59%, as an adult, by 28%, and their odds of committing a violent crime is increased by 30%. This is what researchers call the cycle of violence, and Patrick Purdy was one of the many children thrust into it. When Purdy was nine, Kathleen faced several charges of neglect, forcing Patrick and his siblings into protective custody. After she completed counseling, the charges were dropped and the children were returned. Unfortunately, nothing had changed. Patrick and his mother started butting heads immediately upon return. Intense conflict continued between them and peaked during the summer of 1978. At just 13, Patrick's mother kicked him out, 
At 13 years old, children tend to be highly self-conscious and start developing an identity. They start going through hormonal changes, mood swings, and start seeking independence. Yet they still don't fully understand or think about the consequences of their actions. When Patrick was tossed to the curb by his own mother, the streets of Los Angeles became his new home. In order to survive, Patrick resorted to sex work, where older men were the primary client. Statistics show that a majority of male street sex workers use drugs, but only 5% of these male street sex workers used drugs out of dependency. Nearly half of these surveyed sex workers reported they used drugs because, quote, sex work becomes physically easier. 38% reported that they used drugs because the client had asked for it. As a young, vulnerable teen, Patrick Purdy was likely introduced to drugs through his adult clients. And unfortunately, between the ages of 13 and 15, he developed a dependency on them. During this time, Patrick started to have frequent, minor encounters with the law and subsequently wound up in an alcoholic rehabilitation clinic before his 15th birthday. There, he was classified as very drug-oriented and released into the care of his biological father. After just a few months, Patrick moved into the home of an older man and dropped out of school permanently. Again, he resorted to sex work on the streets of LA to survive. In the summer of 1980, months before his 16th birthday, Patrick was arrested in Hollywood for soliciting an undercover officer for sex. The following year, his father was struck and killed by a car. From then on, Purdy was in and out of juvenile custody for solicitation, drug use, traffic violations, and vandalism. In November of 1982, at the age of 18, juvenile authorities stopped their involvement. The following year, while living along the Sacramento River in a homeless camp, Patrick conspired with another man to commit theft. They both attempted to snatch a woman's purse in West Sacramento. Patrick pleaded guilty and served 30 days in jail for being an accessory to a felony. Two years later, Purdy traveled cross-country to Florida, where he held a job for less than a month, and subsequently traveled back to L.A. Towards the end of 84, he started receiving disability checks due to his drug and alcohol dependency. This would be his main source of income for the rest of his short life. A year later, Purdy would attempt to change his life for the better. However, it was with the least effort and ambition. He underwent vocational training to become a welder and passed most of the courses, but he failed to gain most of the skills. It also didn't help that most of the time, Purdy was intoxicated by drugs and alcohol. Purdy sought out mental health treatment at his lowest lows, but would never return for a follow-up appointment making the treatment essentially useless. Purdy started collecting firearms as well, and he was allowed to do this, despite the fact that he had expressed suicidal thoughts several times to counselors. In April of 1987, an intoxicated Patrick Purdy was arrested for shooting his gun in a prohibited area of a national forest. While handcuffed in the back of the deputy's car, he laid on his back and kicked out the window. 
He then kicked and attempted to bite the lone deputy. Because Purdy fired the gun in an open area, and there was no indication he wanted to hurt anyone, authorities chalked it up as a misdemeanor. He was given an additional drunk and disorderly charge for his sluggish attack, because, well, he was drunk and handcuffed and didn't do too much damage, I guess. Because Patrick lived a transient life and these were misdemeanor charges, the court wasn't aware of his prior convictions or mental health issues. If someone had a full perspective of his life up until that point, maybe something more could have been done. Even then, maybe not. Purdy spent 45 days in jail, and the court issued an informal probation, which basically means, don't let us catch you doing something within the next few years. During his short time in the county jail, Patrick fastened a noose from his shirt and cut his wrists with his fingernails. Because he was in obvious danger to himself, he was transferred to a psychiatric inpatient unit for observation. He told psychiatrists there that he was experiencing auditory hallucinations of his mother's voice, visual hallucinations that the walls were closing in on him, and paranoid thoughts that the county was extorting his money. He also expressed that he would like to kill the deputy that arrested him. One specific condition handed down by the judge was imposing a ban on Patrick from purchasing or acquiring firearms. Because the county took his gun, he would violate these terms three months later, in August of 1987. Purdy's ban came out of El Dorado County, and he purchased the weapon in Stockton, where no one could have been aware of his ban. It was also entirely legal for the gun dealer to sell the firearm to Patrick, even if they had been aware of his ban. This was just a violation of his probation. He wasn't breaking the law, and it would not have resulted in an additional charge if he was caught. Because of these holes and loopholes in the system, Purdy was able to acquire a 9mm handgun. Soon after his release, Patrick was enrolled at Delta College, where he completed two vocational classes. It's important to point out that the student body was predominantly Southeast Asian at this college. This is the same for Cleveland Elementary School, where Patrick attended as a child, where he'd return in 1989 to take six lives, including his own. We'll dig deeper into Patrick's hatred for the Southeast Asian community towards the end of the episode when I thoroughly dissect his psychology and possible motives. In the summer of 1988, Purdy traveled to Sandy, Oregon, where he lived with his paternal aunt and her husband. These were the best parental figures and role models Purdy would ever have, but his mental health problems and drug use became too much for them very quickly. They asked him to move out and stopped accepting his collect phone calls because they couldn't afford it. Before returning to his transient life, Patrick legally obtained a semi-automatic assault rifle, known as an AK-56, a Chinese-manufactured AK-47. He was briefly employed in Memphis, Tennessee, before moving to Windsor, Connecticut in December of that year. This is where Patrick bought a 75-round drum magazine, a 30-round magazine, and 10 boxes of ammunition for his assault rifle. 
For his handgun, he bought a single box of ammunition. The day after Christmas, Patrick Purdy returned to California and checked into a Stockton motel. On December 28th, he purchased a 9mm pistol, but had to wait 15 days in order to pick it up, in accordance with state law. Six days later, on January 3rd, 1989, Patrick sat in a Stockton bar, dressed in camouflage. He told the bartender about his rifle, to which they responded that if he wanted to shoot deer, he should get a different gun for better accuracy. Purdy said he preferred the rapid fire and spread of his weapon and demonstrated how he'd fire it by holding out his arms and moving them side to side as if his imaginary gun would be firing to kill anything in front of him. After complaining about Vietnamese people receiving government aid, he exited the bar and said, quote, You're going to read about me in the papers. Two days later, witnesses saw him parked at the rear of Cleveland Elementary School around 7.20 a.m. He was scouting out the place. Five days after this, around 5.30 p.m., Purdy entered an empty classroom at Sierra Middle School. He stumbled upon a janitor and asked for a dollar before exiting. He walked back and forth between the private road separating the middle school and Lincoln High School. Starting at 4.30 p.m. every evening, the high school served as a Cambodian cultural center, teaching K-12 and Cambodian languages. Roughly 700 children and adult students attended this center every evening. Two days later, on January 12th, at 5.45 p.m., the janitor spotted Purdy in front of Lincoln High School, pacing back and forth. The following morning, he picked up the pistol he had purchased two weeks ago and spent the afternoon with his half-brother Albert at his Stockton motel. What happened during this visit is recounted only by Albert himself, although he can't be trusted entirely. He would be arrested the following month for possession of explosive devices. It's unknown what he planned on doing with them. However, most of what Albert claimed is in line with what Patrick would say, so it seems to be pretty authentic. Albert arrived at the Stockton Motel and let Purdy borrow his camouflage jacket as requested. Purdy and Albert both had desires to assassinate a police officer, and at one point they established the perfect place would be from a bridge near Modesto. Purdy was always more serious about these murderous plans and would tell Albert, Let's do it. Together, they cleaned and loaded Purdy's guns while drinking and openly discussing their plans. Purdy told his brother he wanted to kill people, to which Albert responded, You're not ready yet. Purdy ended the discussion with, Fuck it, they're not worth it. Tuesday morning, January 17th, 1989, 10.40 a.m. A motel guest witnessed Purdy loading his station wagon with guns wrapped in towels. The guest glanced into his car and noticed wrapped bundles strewn across every inch of space. The man made a joke about the early checkout time and claimed it was because the hotel manager was quote-unquote a Hindu. Purdy replied, quote, those damn Hindus and boat people own everything. The phrase boat people emerged following the collapse of the South Vietnamese government in 1975. 
It primarily referred to the thousands of Vietnamese refugees fleeing by boat to safety. Many of those people suffered dehydration, theft by pirate, starvation, and death by drowning. Purdy was using this phrase in a derogatory manner, and it's probably the last words he would utter to another human. Patrick was dressed head to toe in paramilitary clothing. He wore a long sleeve camouflage shirt, a green flak jacket, blue jeans, black boots, and an ammo pouch around his waist. On his jacket were the handwritten words and phrases Freedom, Death to the Great Satan, PLO, Earthman, and Libya. He had also drawn and circled the American flag with a slash mark going through it. It's presumed that over the next 50 minutes, Purdy stopped for one last cup of coffee and a cigarette. That same morning, an anonymous person called the Stockton Police Department. They reported that there had been a death threat to Cleveland Elementary School. 11.40 a.m. Patrick Purdy parked his car in the back lot of Cleveland Elementary School, just over four miles from his motel. He checked his watch a final time before inserting his earplugs. He exited his car and walked towards the south end of the school's playground. 300 children aged 5 to 11 were playing outside for recess. From less than 200 feet away, Purdy raised his assault rifle and fired 66 rounds into the crowd of children. He didn't aim at anyone in specific. He sprayed his weapon back and forth hoping to kill as many people as possible. Students and teachers inside the portable classrooms nearby dove onto the ground, while children outside froze, screamed, or scattered. Purdy ran to the other side of the building he was using as cover to unload the rest of his ammo. As he did this, in the rear parking lot, his car exploded and burst into flames. Purdy emptied the last nine rounds of his magazine, then quickly reloaded and fired an additional 30 rounds at the children. After this magazine was empty, the sound of police sirens grew closer. 26-year-old Patrick Purdy then pulled out a 9mm pistol and emptied one last bullet into his right temple. In two minutes or less, Patrick Purdy had fired 105 rounds killing five children. Thirty children and one teacher were wounded. Police arrived within minutes of the rampage and closed in on Purdy, kicking his weapons from reach of the twitching, now harmless body. Some officers searched the area for more suspects, while others comforted the wounded until EMS arrived. Inside Purdy's smoking car, detectives found the cause of the explosion a metal pipe bomb in the back seat, next to containers of flammable liquid and fireworks. Here is an archived news clip from the day of the shooting, reporting the horrific event. Witnesses say a lone gunman walked onto the campus at Stockton's Cleveland Elementary School and opened fire with a machine gun. At the time, four to five hundred first, second, and third graders were playing during their lunch period. When the rampage was over, five students lay dead, a teacher and more than 30 students were injured, more than half of them critically. One bystander said it sounded like a gun battle. Then suddenly this car was ablaze 
and the suspect was dead from a self-inflicted bullet wound to the head. I heard bursts of fire, and like he had expended his clip, and then all of a sudden put another one in and shot some more and expended that one and dropped the next clip, and it was like about three different bursts like that. And then I, I saw that car over there, you know, burst into flame, and then all of a sudden one more shot. And then that was it, and everything, everything was quiet after that. Students who were in classrooms say they didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. I thought it was like a game or something. And me and my, me and my friend Nicole, we, we were laughing because we didn't know what happened. And then, and then we seen all, this gang class fell down. And we, when the little girl got up, the, le the leg was almost falling off. I just heard the gunshots, and then I looked, and I saw my friend laying down on the ground. Then I told the teacher, and then he grabbed him. Then he brought him to the classroom. What ensued was sheer panic as parents began arriving in frantic search of their kids. Police began piecing together the tragic details. The suspect apparently is a white male in his early 20s. He was heavily armed and was wearing fatigues. One officer said the letters PLO were written on his shirt. Authorities say they have no motive, and since the suspect killed himself, they may never know why he turned this playground into a war zone. Five of the 30 children shot were hit directly in their vital organs and succumbed to their wounds at the scene. Six-year-old Sokim An was born in a refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodian border. She loved to help her mother cook and take care of her younger brothers. At home, she'd use her own workbooks to help her parents learn English. She wanted to become a doctor. After the tragedy, her father told reporters, we do not feel normal anymore. We miss her. The tragedy happened so fast, and now she is just gone. We are not as strong as before. We used to take Sokim to the park nearly every day in the summer. That was her favorite place. We'd go there late in the evening to cool off. Now I miss her more than ever. She used to ask me all the time to go play on the swings. Sokim's mother suffered severe mental health issues after her only daughter's death. She started to wander away, both physically and mentally, according to her husband. Sokim would have turned seven years old a month later on February 22nd. Four doors down from her apartment once lived her best friend, six-year-old Ram Chun, whose life was also taken during the shooting. Like Sokim, Ram Chum and her family immigrated to the United States seeking a better life, away from the violence impacting their country. Upon hearing the news of his daughter's murder, Ram's father was hospitalized immediately after collapsing to the ground. He would be hospitalized again for at least a week from the trauma. Ram's mother was interviewed three months after her daughter's death. She sat in front of Ram's shrine and told reporters, I had hopes for my daughter, for a bright future. I wanted her to have an education and become a nurse. I will miss watching her learn. She loved school so much. It is just life. I have accepted it. My husband has not. Their family doesn't have the money to move and prays their other children attending the school will be better protected from tragedies such as these.
Like other families, they received $2,800 from a victim's fund to pay for their daughter's funeral. Today, that's equivalent to $10,800. Ram's family also continued to receive government aid to support their four remaining children. She couldn't accept the additional funds provided to victims' families without jeopardizing her aid money, despite the fact that it would have provided much-needed support. Ram's 16-year-old brother told reporters, Over there, we couldn't afford clothes or food, and then we came over here, and a thing like this happened. My father just went crazy when he was told about my sister Ram. Eight-year-old Oyen Lim fled Cambodia with her parents and four siblings four years ago. Her father was a farmer and told reporters, My mind is still not clear about what happened. I've tried to cut my feelings for my daughter out, but I can't. I'm trying to forget little by little as the counselors advise me to, but it's hard. I came to the United States because they were killing too many people in Cambodia. And now the same thing has happened in the United States. His wife, Oyen's mother, stated, I was very sad when I heard my daughter had been killed. It was very painful. I can't explain it. I'm very worried about my other two children. We never go out. This wasn't the first time Oyen's family suffered the tragedy of losing a child. It was the fourth. Three of their children died from starvation in Cambodia. They called Oyen their lucky child because she was safe inside her mother's stomach during their transition to a Thai refugee camp. Oyen's mother stated, If one more child of mine dies, I do not want to live. Nine-year-old Rathanan Orr was the only boy killed at the school. His father, Kim, was living in Ohio when he turned on the news and saw his son's face. Kim had been a captain in the Cambodian army and was separated from his wife, In, who was three months pregnant with Rathanon at the time. In was told that Kim had been killed during battle. Kim and In both immigrated to the United States in different parts of the country, both thinking the other had perished in Cambodia. Kim had started a new life in Ohio. He remarried and now had a two-year-old son. Kim flew to Stockton and was not warmly welcomed by his ex-wife. In claimed that she had no idea her former husband was alive. She stated, He never introduced himself as the father of my boy until he was dead. If he loved the kid, why didn't he come to support his child? What Kim told reporters conflicted with this. He said that he had been in touch with In and had been sending her money. He said he attempted to visit them in Stockton, but that Inn had refused to meet him. Rathanon had celebrated his ninth birthday just a week before he died. His 14-year-old sister told reporters, Their mother weeps through the night, but doesn't let anyone see her tears. Quote, It's hard for her to let go. She loved him so much. Every time he came home from school, he would hug her. Six-year-old Tui Tran was the only Vietnamese victim of the massacre. The morning before she left for school, she turned down her favorite cookies, telling her mother she'd save them for when she got home. Her parents and three remaining siblings now all sleep in one room, 
of their two-bedroom home out of fear that another shooter will target them. Her father believed that Purdy didn't act alone. With the help of a victim-slash-witness program, they were able to move to a three-bedroom place, far away from Cleveland Elementary. They still all sleep in the same room. Some people made insensitive comments to the family about their daughter's death. Tui's father told reporters, They say you'll be alright. You have other children. They never think. No one can ever replace my daughter. The family was incredibly grateful for the donations they received to help with funeral expenses. If they hadn't got the assistance to pay for her funeral, they would have had to sell everything. Five days after the shooting, more than 600 people gathered for her memorial service. The youth group leader told the crowd this, Over the past 14 years, our people have looked for a country that would offer us shelter and safety. We realize that in a world such as ours, safety is not possible. What we have found is something more important, the love that people share here. The tragedy that cut short Tui Tran's innocent life is not in vain when the result is love for one another in the community. At a church nearby, a memorial service was held for all the shooting victims. The principal of Cleveland Elementary told the crowd, We believe that every one of us needs to watch our children, to listen to our children, and to know our children more closely, to look for signs of trouble. For I believe the man who did this terrible thing was a troubled child who grew to be a troubled adult. When a person commits mass murder, a lot of people write it off as that person simply being a monster, inhuman, the embodiment of evil. But the truth is, Patrick Purdy shared more qualities with us than any monster or demon. In October of 1989, nine months after the massacre, a 99-page document was given to the Attorney General. The contents was an investigation regarding the background and events surrounding the shooting. One of the opening paragraphs states, The Attorney General initiated the investigation to answer several questions. First, what led to this horrendous event? Second, was the assault connected with the increasing number of incidents of violence and harassment targeting Southeast Asian immigrants? Third, are there lessons to be learned from the events which might reduce the chances of another such tragedy? These are nine conclusions summarized from the investigation. One, the evidence indicates the probability that in late 1988, Patrick Purdy decided to kill himself and to kill others at the same time in order to make people remember him. He began methodical preparations in Connecticut for his death and returned to California to carry out his plans. 2. In his assault on Cleveland School, Purdy intended to shoot as many children as possible and then die before law enforcement could close in on him. He may have viewed suicide as another way of punishing the authorities by escaping retaliation. 3. Purdy focused on Southeast Asians and Stockton as the target of his homicidal plans. He blamed all minorities for his failings and selected Southeast Asians because they were the minority with who he was most in contact. It appears probable that his planning finally centered on Cleveland School 
because it had a majority population of Southeast Asian children, because it was the school which he had once attended, and because children were the most vulnerable target he could attack. 4. Ethnic tensions are inevitable when large numbers of people from other cultures arrive in a community. One-sixth of Stockton's residents are recent immigrants from Southeast Asia. Major efforts are required in such communities to reduce cross-cultural friction and to avoid feeding ethnic animosities in those who perceive competition and threats from new arrivals. 5. Patrick Purdy grew up in a disturbed family setting, badly damaged by a lack of supportive parents. He became a young man with virtually no self-esteem and a high level of anger at the world around him. Isolated by social and emotional disabilities from the society around him, he resorted to racial hatreds to combat his own sense of failure. There is no indication that Purdy acted in conjunction with any hate group, or that his assault was carried out with any other people. He was essentially a loner. 7. While it is possible that Purdy could have been deterred at least temporarily from his ultimate ending by the mental health and criminal justice systems, that idea is highly speculative. It appears certain that once Purdy had decided to die and take as many others as possible with him, only major restrictions on the firepower he could bring to bear on his intended victims would have made a difference in the outcome. 8. California laws at the time allowed even disturbed and dangerous people to own and acquire high-power firearms and high-capacity ammunition magazines and drums. Restrictions have now been enacted which will limit the legal acquisition and possession of assault weapons in California. However, the assault weapons can still be legally acquired in all neighboring states, and high-capacity magazines and drums can legally be acquired and owned in California. National bans should be enacted on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. 9. Despite the fact that Purdy was under a condition of probation prohibiting him from possessing firearms and had been committed to a mental health facility for treatment, because he was dangerous to himself and others. He legally bought a firearm in January 1989. He carried that firearm to the Cleveland school and used it to kill himself. Corrective legislation should be enacted in California to change that situation. One of the major contributors to this 99-page investigation was Richard Yarvis, who completed a psychological autopsy of Patrick Purdy. Because the shooter killed himself before he was caught, no one could ask him why. Psychological autopsies are most commonly used to study suicidal behavior. In some cases, like this one, they are used to study people who commit suicide after committing homicide. In Dr. Yarvis's findings, he concludes that there are four major factors that must be examined to understand the act of violence that Purdy committed. I'm going to name them one by one and give you a summary of each finding. Number one is the inadequacy of basic personality functioning. In this part, Dr. Yarvis gives a detailed view of Purdy's childhood after stating, quote, Failure to expose children to suitable growth and development experiences predictably produces adults with maladaptive and imperfectly functioning personalities. 
Such personality dysfunctions are the precursors of maladaptive behaviors, including violence. I already talked about Patrick's disturbing childhood, but I want to read you all important details that I hadn't read beforehand. These are Dr. Yarvis's findings in part. Quote, Conflict had begun between Purdy and his mother by the time he was nine. Purdy was described as being destructive and as lying and stealing at home. There was little opportunity for learning, limit-setting, or impulse control. Purdy was described as one who never was willing to follow the rules. Purdy's stepfather, Albert, lived in the home. He was described by several sources as being guarded, suspicious, and paranoid, and as being physically abusive to Purdy's mother. It was reported that when the stepfather beat the mother, she instructed her children, including Purdy, to run to a neighbor and call the police. No information was provided by anyone to suggest that Purdy himself was a direct victim of abuse at the hands of his stepfather. During these critical years, Purdy was exposed to the specter of parental violence, providing him with both a traumatic experience and a negative role model. To summarize Purdy's adolescence, it appears that the chaos and trauma of childhood continued. Family members characterized Purdy during this period as being angry all the time, angry at the world, angry at everyone, a loner, and a guy with a chip on his shoulder. The second major factor contributing to Purdy's actions, according to Dr. Yarvis, was the presence and contribution of mental disorder. He was evaluated by professionals from 1984 to 1988. The last time he was seen was six months before the shooting. In 1984, Patrick told a psychologist, I have a bad temper. People look at me funny, laugh at me. I'm not a violent person, as much as I would like to be sometimes. He also mentioned a failed suicide attempt and was given an IQ score of 71. The average score is 100. Two years later, Purdy was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder by staff of a mental health clinic. In 1988, another doctor that evaluated Purdy revealed his IQ score to be 88. The same doctor diagnosed him with borderline personality disorder. Key informants corroborated a long history of substance abuse. Alcohol was the most consistent, but Purdy also used these substances as well. LSD, modeling glue, PCP, amphetamines, heroin, and cocaine. In summary of this second major factor, Dr. Yarvis states, quote, The presence of mental illness further compromised Purdy's already inadequately functioning personality and impaired his impulse control and his capacity to distinguish reality accurately. Purdy could have suffered from schizophrenia, especially in light of the fact that his father suffered from it as well. Ultimately, we'll never know. The third major contribution to Purdy's actions is the special relevance of injuries to self-esteem. Quote, The origins of self-esteem can be traced to the sense of basic trust that infants only develop if they are placed in a nurturing environment during the first years of life. Self-esteem further evolves from this beginning during the remainder of childhood and adolescence, when the interactions between child and important adults are sufficiently positive and supportive. For such development to take place, a child must perceive that he is loved and valued by the adults in his world. Besides resorting to fantasy, persons with self-esteem problems may develop elaborate, albeit false, rationalizations about the causes of their self-perceived sense of failure. 
Dr. Yarvis concluded that Purdy used both of these coping mechanisms. He bought weapons and obsessed over military gear to make himself feel powerful and important. Having possession of these killing machines made it easier for Purdy to fantasize about retaliating and getting revenge on minority groups he vilified. The last major contributing factor to the Cleveland School Massacre is the impact of precipitating and situational factors. Purdy had nothing to lose. He was unemployed with little assets, believed his life had little value, and didn't have a single positive relationship in his life. He also had easy access to obtaining powerful weapons. The last part of Dr. Yarvis's psychological autopsy is conclusions and recommendations. In part, he wrote, In this case, Purdy's profound feelings of anger, alienation, and inadequacy were coupled with his deficiencies in mental functioning, his preoccupation with violent fantasies, his predilection to scapegoat minorities, and his access to means and opportunity. All of these factors converging at one time and place, as they did, without the presence of any inhibitory factors, produced the Cleveland School tragedy. So what can be done to prevent this? Dr. Yarvis says we could start by enhancing the growth and development experience of children. He states that Children's Protective Services doesn't have the resources to make this possible. 43 years later, this is still a fact. Early identification and treatment of psychiatric disorders would also reduce violence. Programs that provide these services are underfunded and understaffed. Dr. Yarvis suggests the creation of more programs that seek to challenge hate groups and combat racial, ethnic, and religious prejudices in order to reduce scapegoating and readily identifiable targets. I'm going to read Dr. Yarvis's last suggestion verbatim. Quote, the issue of means should also be addressed, for it too can reduce risk. Slogans like, people kill people, guns don't kill people, or guns kill people, people don't kill people, are equally absurd. A lethal weapon in the wrong hands contributes to violence. The combination of person and means must be addressed. By limiting the access of all persons to some weapons of extraordinary lethality, and limiting the access of some persons with potential lethality to all weapons, we can at least reduce the contribution that means make to cumulative risk. Before we close out this episode, I want to play you all some more archived news clippings of this tragic event. Purdy is a 27-year-old loner who took his own life after turning the school's playground into something resembling a battlefield. Five children died when investigators found that a search of Purdy's rented room shed little light on why he attacked the children. In fact, what they discovered may have even deepened the mystery. Randy Shandable has our report. The more we learn about Patrick Edward Purdy, the more grotesque it gets. Police say for the past three weeks, Purdy stayed in this Stockton motel off Highway 99. Inside this room, police say they found ammunition and something very strange. That there had to be a hundred little plastic army men couple of jeeps and a tank that were spread out through the entire room up on top of uh, the uh, drapes in the shower one in the freezer 
Journalists from around the nation crowded near a Stockton police captain today as he revealed new details about yesterday's unexplainable massacre. It turns out this killing field was once Purdy's own playground. He attended Cleveland Elementary School from kindergarten through third grade and once lived on American Avenue nearby. Though police know of no reason Purdy might hold a grudge against the school. And though most of his victims were Asian, police have found no evidence of anti-Asian bias. Why he did this, we may never know. He obviously developed a military hang-up. Uh, I understand in some conversations he spoke about Vietnam, but he's obviously too young to have went to Vietnam. The killing machine was this AK-47 with bayonet. Carved into the barrel was the word Hezbollah, the name of an Iranian terrorist group. There were also the words freedom and victory. On ammo clips were other slogans, including evil and humanoids. There were PLO slogans on Purdy's camouflage clothing. And police found this in his motel room. And it has drawn on it some pictures and written in black ink at the top, V for victory, and at the bottom, F for freedom. People often assume mass killers just snap or something. Patrick Purdy did not just snap yesterday. He planned it. Wearing a flak jacket to protect himself, carrying hundreds of rounds of extra ammunition, specifically going to his old school, and apparently trying to divert police with a Molotov cocktail to his own car. Made up of a Budweiser beer bottle filled with gasoline with a fuse type material stuck in it. Police say Purdy had trouble keeping jobs, working for a couple months last year at this machine shop, working for just one month at another machine shop. His former foreman says he just walked out one day. But he did a lot of cleanup, and he wasn't satisfied with the work that he was doing. So in this shop, he kind of had, what, the equivalent of the grunt work? Yeah. And he didn't like it? No, he didn't like it. He, whenever he was told to do something, he... Um, had a sour look on his face. Yeah, he talked pretty much about uh, about when he was when he was young, growing up and stuff. That he didn't have too much of a family life, and uh, he kind of lived all over the nation. Lived in Hawaii, lived everywhere, and he never had it really easy. That's did he, did he complain about his parents? Uh, he said his mom was an alcoholic. He didn't even know where she lived. Former co-workers said Purdy complained he had no friends, no social life. He told them he would just work go back to a small motel room, sleep, and come back to work. But a man who lived next door to Purdy in one of those motel rooms paints a different picture. He was um, in and out all night long, all day long, uh, real skittish, uh, not too friendly. Doing drugs? Yeah, I'm sure he was. Nobody could stay up all night and all day and not be doing drugs. An autopsy is being done on Patrick Purdy to see if he indeed was under the influence of drugs yesterday. Other than that, police consider this case essentially closed. They say they're almost certain that Purdy acted alone. In Stockton, Randy Shandabel for the 10 o'clock news. A broken home, a history of childhood drinking, and a long criminal record may have been warnings, but they still don't explain why Patrick Purdy took aim at so many innocent children. Purdy's 63-year-old grandmother, who lives 15 miles south of Stockton in Lodi, figures her grandson's motive died with him. Julia Chumbley told a reporter through her screen door she could not believe it when she heard the news yesterday. She said the whole thing is like a nightmare. 
No, I mean, it's, yeah, I was in chalk all day yesterday. I didn't feel like talking. I still don't like, I still don't feel like talking. Um, it was a sad thing. And it, and it's Mrs. Chumley said her grandson came to visit about twice a year using her address to collect his mail, and she said there were never any problems. He always acted fairly decent when he was here. That's all I can say about that. Mrs. Chumley said when Patrick was a child, he only had a normal childlike interest in guns, and as far as she knew, was not prejudiced against Asians. She also said, sadly, I know there are a lot of victims, but we are victims too. Patrick Purdy's stepmother also talked to reporters today in Lockerford, north of Stockton. Carol Masterson said her stepson looked like his father and acted like his father. Both, she said, were loners, both quiet, reserved, and standoffish. The father, who was killed in a car accident in 1981, had been in the service, but according to his wife, had been released because of a psychological disability. Masterson said she believes her stepson had a definite reason for going to that school and committing yesterday's massacre. I think something happened at that school or in that area, and he went back. He couldn't handle it any longer. He had kept it inside and hadn't talked to anyone. I honestly believe it. And I don't know what makes my conviction that. But there was a reason he got into alcohol and or drugs. And it could have stemmed back to when he was going to that school. Masterson said she thinks her stepson kept things inside him for as long as he could and then just exploded. The man who wrote the book, Mass Murder, America's Growing Menace, said today that mass murderers are angry at the world for a lifetime of frustrations and blame everyone else for their problems. James Allen's Fox said before they die, they want revenge. And what better way than to take children with them, the most vulnerable and the most dear to us? Another expert said mass murderers who prey on children actually think like children. They live the way most eight-year-olds do in a world of uh, zooming planes and my soldiers can get your so soldiers. But most of us who don't live our lives in Rambo movies and who do believe maybe a kinder and gentler America may come someday, give that up to some degree. Or we get it out through watching the 49ers on TV and yell, kill the ref. We don't go kill kids. The chief psychologist for the San Diego Police Department called Purdy's rampage yesterday a grandstand suicide, where the gunman says to the world, I am important. Look at me. When the gunman opened fire on the children yesterday, Janet Gang, a teacher at Cleveland Elementary, was on playground duty with one other teacher. Tonight, she's in a hospital bed. She was the only adult hit by the withering gunfire. She at first thought she was hearing firecrackers until the students began screaming and falling. She then turned, looked across the playground, and saw a chilling sight. I looked around, and I saw a guy standing out by the sixth grade portables. I didn't see his face. It seems like he had sunglasses on, but he was in a stance like you see um, soldiers. I mean, the type of military stance with a gun, policeman stance with a gun right in front of him. And it was just total popping. I mean, I could see rocks flying. King at first told the kids to get down as the gunman continued to pepper the playground with shots. But realizing he was still shooting at them, she told him to run for the building. She too ran, but a bullet stopped her. I felt the shot in my leg, and then I went down. And I, I could see partly around me, and I could see kids laying, and the other kids had run into the building. But I was laying there with my back to him, and I could still hear him going off. And I thought, he's going to shoot me anytime, Dad. I just, you know, you're laying with your back to this guy shooting. You thought you were going to die? Yeah. yeah.
Well, moments later, the gunman took his own life. Jing was spared. She suffered a bullet wound in the hip. She will need an operation. Asked if she could go back into the classroom. She answered yes, but that's when I'll break down. Other teachers were back in the classroom today at Cleveland Elementary School doing what they could to comfort their students. The school was open, although most of the children weren't there. LaQuesta has our reports. Some children did return to Cleveland Elementary School today, but not many. Only about 200 out of an enrollment of almost 1,000. Counselors, teachers, and administrators personally greeted as many children as they could. Officials wanted the healing process to begin. We're going to try to make this as normal as we possibly can. But it is not normal for traumatized children to have to run the gauntlet of the waiting media, drawn here to chronicle a story that can't be ignored. I'm upset that there's a lot of reporters here and it's difficult for the kids to get through. I'm upset that the children um, had to go through this trauma and the children Some parents who brought their children to school today talked about how their children acted last night, even once back in the safety of their homes. They were scared. Uh, they didn't want to go outside. They didn't want to stray too far from us. And you know, this, they were just shaken. Some parents said because their children had been so violently pulled from their childhood world yesterday, they had to bring them back to Cleveland Elementary School today. I didn't want him to be afraid. You know, he was terrified as it was. And hopefully getting them back in the routine, he'll adjust better. But it's not just the children that need to readjust their lives. Teachers, parents, this whole community is suffering. And for those trying to help, coping is made more difficult because some of the victims and survivors are Southeast Asian refugees, immigrants already burdened by the past they fled and the new land and language they are trying to adapt to. She didn't understand English, and I was looking for a translator. But finally, the only two words that she could muster from her vocabulary was she die question mark it almost sounded like something from her language the way she put it so quickly she died question mark and so yes she did school officials say they will continue this special counseling until every child is helped we will work with our children to come to accept and, and handle what has happened at Cleveland School. And by midday, there were children back in the same playground that was a scene of such horror just 24 hours earlier. There were still scars for the children to look at, bullet holes in walls, but holes that are now being patched up. The playground was once again for the children, a playground where gunman Patrick Purdy had himself played as a child 20 years ago. This man is no longer alive. This man will no longer harm us or our children or your children or anyone's children. In Stockton, Lloyd LaQuesta for the 10 o'clock news. In Stockton tonight, people directly touched by the tragedy and those who are simply reaching out to comfort others gathered for a memorial service. It was one of many steps towards recovering from an explosion of violence that no one could possibly have been prepared for. John Fowler was at tonight's memorial and is standing by now in Stockton with a live report. John. Elaine, people say the shock, the grief, the loss has yet really to settle in. It is only a few yards from the school where yesterday the gunman's bullets felled those children to the Lutheran church where tonight those children were mourned. It was a service of remembrance and healing. There were songs of hope 
There were tears in an emotional service tonight. People struggling to cope with a tragic disorder of life. We are simply not prepared to be grieving for our children. They were parents and students and staff from the school and friends and strangers from the community. I grieved with the women who were standing next to me. I, I didn't know them, but I know that we all, any mother shares that tragedy. Any mother who has ever had a five-year-old ch child can imagine that child and experience that tragedy and feel for those families. Those little kids were coming to school to learn. They came to this country to learn something, to learn how to be free, learn what it's all about, learn respect for one another, and they never had a chance. Stockton is culturally diverse, but this tragedy hit hardest the Asian community, especially Cambodian immigrants. Tonight, they mourned for their dead children, six-year-old Sokhim An, six-year-old Ram Chun, eight-year-old Oyen Lim, eight-year-old Rathanan Orr, and six-year-old Tui Tran. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to the outro where I talk about semi-recent, light-hearted true crime news to lift the mood a little bit. But before that, please make sure to rate my podcast on Spotify or iTunes. It really helps my podcast out a lot, and it's a way that you can support me for absolutely free. Thank you. This article comes from Newser.com, and it's written by Rob Quinn. The title reads, Woman allegedly made bomb threats to get boyfriend off work. And this is what it reads. A Maine woman who wanted to spend more time with her boyfriend came up with an incredibly stupid plan to get him off work. Kayla Blake, 33, allegedly called in two bomb threats to her booze workplace. Officials say the threats to a Puritan medical products plant in Pittsfield, which produces swabs for COVID tests, resulted in the evacuation of around 400 employees from both the company's plants in the town and the loss of a full day of production. She has been charged with a felony count of terrorizing. Police say that Blake, an Aetna resident, called state police at 9 a.m. Thursday and said there was a bomb at the plant. She allegedly called again two hours later and said she was going to plant four pipe bombs near the plant. Police traced the call back to Aetna and deputies found Blake after speaking to area residents. She was arrested around 6 p.m. Thursday and bail was set at $1,500. Alright, that is all for the entire episode, and I wanted to let you guys know again that I will be starting a Patreon this summer. I'm thinking around mid-July. Again, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a good morning, evening, or night. And don't forget to tune in next Tuesday for another episode. Goodbye.